Lord, we just, uh, we just lay these things out before you. God, we thank you for the way that you're at work in your kingdom, in our community, in our church, in our families, Lord. We long, Jesus, for more of the lost to come to faith and to find you. We, uh, Lord, just even as we talk about this idea of a Christian school and just that vision, Lord, we lay that out before you, that if that's your will and your plan and your purpose, your direction for our church and for this community, that you'd, you'd lead the steps, Lord, that you would direct, that you would guide, that something would be established for your glory and for your name, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that as we just lay that out before you, we can trust you, Lord. Your timing, your will, uh, lead, Lord. Guide, we pray. And as we come to your word this morning, Jesus, I pray that it would be like sitting at your feet, that um, we just eat from you, Lord, eat of you. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, give us eyes to see, give us, Jesus, ears to hear, and we pray that your spirit would bring application to each of our lives, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, we're in Galatians 4. If, that's, if you're in Galatians already in your Bible, that's where you want to be, chapter 4. After Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, it's been a few weeks here since we've been in Galatians. So um, we've been making our way through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you're visiting with us, watching online, or here for the first time this morning, let me just give you a, 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 quick, a quick little description of what's been going on in this letter to the Galatians as we've been making our way through. The Apostle Paul has been uh, sharing and contrasting examples of a a life based on faith in Christ Jesus, dependent upon the grace of God, and a life that depends, in contrast, to uh, works, to law. And as we've seen, uh, the Galatian letter is written to a group of churches that were established by Paul and his missionary team. And after they had moved on and gone on to other areas of ministry, what had happened is, is false teachers had crept in into the church come into the church, they had undermined the ministry of Paul, they had undermined the ministry of the gospel of grace, they challenged the authority of Paul's apostleship, they, they taught that Paul hadn't proclaimed a full gospel message, that he had left out the need to essentially become Jewish in your faith, that you need to add adherence to the laws of Moses, to your faith in Christ. And so as we've been seeing, as, as we've been seeing, as we've made our way through chapter one, two, and the first part of chapter, chapter three and, and the first part of chapter four, Paul has been confronting this condition of the church and the influence of these false teachers. And he's been calling the church back to the gospel of grace, where we are counted righteous by faith in Christ Jesus, apart from human works. And Paul's done lots of contrasts. He's talked about Grace and law, faith and works, trusting and trying, Abraham or Moses, promises or curses, freedom or fear, our identity in Christ being that of are we servants or are we sons, co-heirs and heirs with Christ. And he says, don't, don't live as a slave. That's where we have left off here in this gospel. You are an heir of grace. Live in the full sonship that has been offered to you in Christ. Depend on the promises of God. Live by faith. Trust in the grace of God. Don't, don't seek to build your own credit score with the Lord, hoping that you can appeal to him on the basis of your own merit. 
You trusted Christ, Paul said. Now don't think you can be perfected by works. Continue to trust Jesus. And now as we come to this section of the text, he reaches out and he gets really personal. That's what I would say. This is probably the most personal part of Paul's letter to the Galatian church. It's like from the heart now. You know, he's given doctrinal stuff and now he wants to speak from, from his heart. This is like, you know, the heart to heart. Hey, let's sit down and have a heart to heart discussion and let me appeal to you on grace. And so here in our text where we are in, in verse 12, he appeals to them on the basis of his love. And he recounts to the churches his love for them and their love for him, what that looked like in the beginning at first. And this is an appeal to them, I would say, on the basis of emotion. He's pulling on heartstrings. Yeah, it's like a heart-to-heart -heart conversation because he loved them. He loved the church. But essentially, in the midst of what was happening among them, they'd become enemies to one another. And so here's Paul's heart. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did, me, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, just to give us a bit of grounding here, the book of Acts tells us, uh, recounts for us the missionary journeys of Paul. Not only does the book of Acts tell us about the missionary journeys of Paul, but we have the letters of Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the, what we call books in the New Testament. And we study, we do our best, we look at the book of Acts, we study the letters of Paul, we try and put together the story and go, well, this is the history, this is some of what happened, this is what went down here. But the truth is, we only got a little slice of the pie, don't we? We only have so much information. I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get to heaven and we get the unabridged version, you know. Sit down with Paul and say, Paul, tell me what happened here, what went on there? And we get the full-length edition when we get to heaven. We'll fill in all the blanks. We'll, we'll hear from the brothers and sisters who were part of the early church. Now, Paul, when he went out on the missionary journeys, he, he was able to go into Gentile cities and reach them for Christ because he says, I became as you were. In this sense, there was a time in, in Paul's life when his zeal for Judaism, his zeal for the law, in that he hated Christians. He hated Gentiles, you know? He, he considered it his duty to persecute Christians. And he had no heart, zero heart, for those who were outside of Israel. And, and, and so to minister to Gentiles, the uncircumcised, godless pagans outside the people of God, it just wasn't in his thinking for a second. And then Paul met Jesus. And everything changed. He was a changed man. The religious cloak, the veneer, the facade, the camouflage, the mask came down and Paul could minister to Gentiles. He threw away even the robes of the Pharisee and he says, I became like you. I became like a Gentile. Not that he participated in their sinful practices, 
but he went where they were. He, he lived shoulder to shoulder. He dressed like them. He wasn't afraid to eat with them. He built friendship. And as he did those things, he shared and he preached Christ and he let his life speak. I was thinking about this. You know, this is often the way of the, the most influential missionaries over the years. I, I, I was recalling, I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but my grandpa's little brother uh, was a Bible translator for Wycliffe. And he and his wife went to Brazil way back, I don't know, the 50s, maybe before that. I don't even know a lot of the history. But they moved into a tribal region and they lived in a grass hut and lived with a people that had no written dialect, no written version of their dialect. And they, they formed a written dialect and they taught the people to read and write. And then they translated the New Testament into that dialect and I didn't really know them a whole ton outside of, you know, their returns to Canada on the furlough. One time they came and visited us here in Gibson's when I was a kid. But they became like the people they were trying to reach. And what they brought was this. They became like them and then they said, now you become like us. Follow Christ. They left a great impact for the gospel. And this is what Paul is saying. I became like you. Now I appeal to you. Become like me. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is the appeal to the life of faith dependent upon the grace of God. And what we read here, I mean, the details are sparse, but we find out that it was a physical ailment that led Paul to these cities, which is, is really interesting. It was this physical sickness or ailment that led him to this area of Galatia. Now, I, I would just say this for fun, you know, for those of you who think God doesn't use sickness and God doesn't use an ailment in the life of a believer and that his will is always to heal. Well, I would tell you his will always is to heal, but sometimes his timing is a lot different than ours, isn't it? And please take note of this. Paul said, I ended up in your midst because of the ailment that I had. And it was because of that that he was able to minister the gospel to them. We have to be mature in our thinking and our theology. We have to understand Romans 8 that teaches us that for the believer, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Paul said, it was my ailment that led me to come into contact with you, which led to me preaching Christ to you, which led to you receiving Jesus as Lord. Now, we don't know what Paul's ailment was. I mean, we could speculate, we can guess. It's kind of fun to do so. It seems to say by some, it seems to allude to the fact that by some of the things he says, that there was something wrong with his eyes. He says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if need so. There are other allusions to that in scripture. Some speculate that because Southern Galatia, that, that Southern area of Turkey is kind of marshy and and swampy that possibly Paul got malaria, that he developed a bad case of malaria. That's when John Mark bailed on the ministry team and took off to go home and, and things were getting really tough. And so to deal with malaria, what you do is you, you get elevation, head up out of the swampy areas into some communities that are at a higher elevation. And quite possibly that led to Paul ending up in these cities of Galatia and them ministering to him and him ministering to them and them hearing the gospel. And he says to them, in spite of my condition, 
You received me like I was an angel. You, you received me like I was a messenger that had come from heaven. It's like crazy how they had treated him. In fact, he says this, you received me like you would have received Jesus himself, which is what Jesus said we're supposed to do, right? With guests and those we entertain. And so incredibly kind and gracious, the benefit was mutual. Paul was cared for physically. They heard the gospel. Their hearts were united together. Paul loved them. And because he loved them, he didn't want to see them move away from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to this relationship with God that's based on law and works. He says to them, you would have done anything for me back in those days. You would have gouged out your eyes to help me. How now have I become your enemy? What's happened between us? And so it's a very personal, heart out on the table, appeal, everything on the line. And he speaks of the false teachers in verse 17. Check it out. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much, you may make much of them. It is, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could present with, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He says this, the false teachers make much of you, but it's so that you will make much of them. They want you all for themselves. You know, I was thinking about that. This is always how false teaching works. False teachers appeal to works of the law. They'll point out your failure and, and, and they will do so to indirectly point you to themselves. You know, they pretend to preach law, but what they're really preaching, Paul says, is themselves. I'm the standard by which to live, you know? They preach themselves. They don't preach Christ. They preach Moses, works, law, merit. And in doing so, they're preaching themselves, Paul says, so that you will make much of them. Those who preach law and works, I would say, are either ignorant in matters of doctrine or they themselves are actually slaves to sin. They're slaves to areas of sin. They preach law because they themselves are not free. And when you are not free, you are prone to become judgmental of others and then you feel the need to remind others of the rules and the boundaries. And what it is is an action of self-justification. It's seeking to measure yourself by others rather than by Christ. Justify yourself by the failings of others. I'm better because I don't do this and I don't do that. And false teachers preach law and works. And by doing so, what Paul says, they're ultimately preaching themselves. You need me. You need me to tell you the rules. This is why elsewhere, Paul said, we preach Christ. That's what I want to say about our church. We preach Christ. Christ crucified. Christ crucified for our sin, the Lamb of God. I'm reminded of Psalm 34 as I was studying this. It says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from my sin. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, radiant 
and their faces will never be put to shame. Paul said this, my little children, I mean, this is his heart out on the table. My little children, I am in anguish until Christ is formed in you. I would say this, that's incredibly heartfelt. It's like spiritual parenting. His heart is invested in this church, in these people. He says, you're like my children. And my desire is this, that Christ would be formed in you. Paul's not preaching himself. He's saying, my desire is that I would be formed in you. His goal is not himself inside the Galatians. His goal is not the church dependent upon him. I was thinking about Michelle and David this week. Pretty awesome. First baby, right? Exciting. Looking forward to meeting that little one. And uh, when Michelle sent us the message about uh, Adeline's birth, Adeline Grace, you know what she didn't send me was a picture of herself. And she didn't send me a picture of David, you know, in the announcement of the birth. She didn't send a picture of David, didn't send a picture of herself, as much as we like the two of them, I wasn't really interested in seeing pictures of them, right? <laughs> she sent a picture of what? The baby, the baby. She wanted her church family to see the baby. I said, Michelle, is it okay if I forward this photo out? She said, yes, please. She wanted the church to see the baby. She wanted the people she loves and the people she cares for to see the baby, and that's like Paul with Christ. He says, I'm in anguish like I'm in childbirth, and I want you to see Jesus, not me. I want you to see Jesus. I want Christ formed in you. Verse 20 again, he says, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone for I'm per perplexed about you. You know, again, this is his heart, and he's like, you know, let her an email, some written form of communication, as helpful as they are, you can't hear my tone. You can't hear the intonation of my voice. Letters and email are great, but face-to-face -face communication is best, Paul says, and I wish you could see me. I wish you could watch my body language and hear the tone of my voice and the emotion as I seek to communicate these things. And so Paul says, I want Christ formed in you. I want you to see Jesus. And so as he goes on here, he's had these doctrinal discussions. He's given a personal defense of himself in earlier chapters. He's given a personal defense of the gospel that he preaches in earlier chapters. And, and now his heart is on the table and he says, I want Christ formed in you. Christ Jesus. Because I love you and I know that you love me, I want Christ formed in us. You know, for a believer, for someone who follows Jesus, there's kind of like really two kinds of pains a Christian has in their heart. The first pain is this. You long for others to know Jesus, don't you? It's like when you think of someone who's lost, whoever's, you know, going through your mind right now, your neighbor, a family friend, or family member, whoever it is, there is the pain of desiring that they would come to Jesus to be born again. We have that pain for those who don't know Jesus. But the second pain a Christian has is this. There's a pain until Christ is brought right out in that person's life. 
They come to know Jesus and then you want Christ to be formed completely and wholly in them. A Christian brother or sister shares a battle or something that they're working through or something that's going on in their life and your pain is this, I want Christ formed in the midst of that. So Paul said to the Galatians, it'll be on the screen. He said, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his heart. He says in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. God says, as Christ, or sorry, Paul says, as Christ works in me, the desire is this, that I would see Christ formed in you. And so this, to this church, Paul lays out his heart. And I, and I think about Paul here, it's like he can't help himself, uh, you know, too much heart, and it's going to get a little too sappy and mushy for him, so he's got to bring us back to some doctrine here. Okay, he's got to get back to some doctrine, balance out the emotions of the heart with engaging the intellect of the mind. So here he goes, okay, ready? You know, um, actually, that's a really important thing. You know, it's the key to an integrated life of faith. Because a life of faith is both the heart and the mind. If it's just all heart, that's too mushy. It's too weak. It tends to get a little too flaky. And if it's all mind, then it's cold. And it's indifferent. And it's unfriendly. An integrated life of following Jesus, a healthy, balanced life, is one of both Heart and mind, is it not? Heart and mind, grace and truth. It's amazing that the Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke words and his words were full of grace and truth. Heart and mind, both. Full of grace and truth. His words weren't empty of grace. They were full of grace. And at the same time, his words weren't thin on truth. They were full of truth. The perfect balance, no mushy middle with Jesus, no cold-hearted matter of fact, grace and truth, the, the integrated life. And so Paul can't get too mushy either, and the church can't get too mushy either. It's not all love, 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 love. It's not all grace, 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 grace. It's truth, 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 truth at the same time. And so he turns to engage the intellect this next passage of scripture will stretch your brain. That's what I would say. You know, you have to apply some thought to what he says here next. You got to have some biblical literacy to what he says next. I mean, if you're completely unfamiliar with the Bible, I'm telling you what we're about to talk about, you're sunk right now, okay? You, you need to read the Bible. You need to be reading your, the, your Bible every day. Learning the narratives of scripture. Learning the spiritual truths of God's word. Seeking the Lord for wisdom. And if you're not familiar with the narratives of the Bible, particularly the count of Abraham, then this is a little bit confusing what Paul talks about here next. And he's, and he's going to kind of like come at this like a rabbi. Rabbis teach different, you know. They like to talk about allegory from Scripture. So let's, let's read this. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So let me just talk about this for a minute so we get our bearings and try and understand where he's going to go here. 
Abraham, the man of faith, was called by God when he was 75 years old. It's crazy to me. You know, you can get saved when you're old. Abraham was 75 years old. The Lord spoke to him. He said, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will give you and I will bless you. Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. Now, the problem was that Abraham and his wife had no children. In fact, his wife was barren. And so they said, okay, Lord, if that's your call upon our lives, we're going to trust you in faith. We'll be obedient. We'll go to the land that you're calling us to go and we'll trust that you will fulfill your promise to us and you will give us offspring. But as often is the case, God doesn't always work on our timetables, does he? He was working on his own timetable and it wasn't quick enough for Sarah. So when Sarah saw that after a number of years had passed that she had not conceived and she was not getting any younger, she suggested that Abraham take a slave girl that served her and that this young girl Hagar become a concubine so that Hagar could conceive a child for Abraham and Sarah could raise that child as her own since she had no children. And so that's what happened. And Hagar got pregnant, which caused some strife between these two women, Hagar and, and, and Sarah. Hagar looked down on Sarah because of her situation. And Sarah was jealous of Hagar because she was pregnant with the child that she wanted. And so Sarah did this. She threw Hagar out. She made her leave her and Abraham. But the Lord intervened and he met Hagar and he brought her back to the tent of Abraham, to the house of Abraham and Sarah. And the Lord promised Hagar, I will take care of you and I will take care of this child. And so when Hagar's son was born, Abraham was 86 years old and he named him Ishmael. Ishmael. And then 13 years later, when, when, when Ishmael is 13 years old and Abraham is 99 years old. Man, that is old. And yeah, when you're 99 years old, you're not going to bear children, you know. Should you get to that age, let me just tell you, that is not going to happen for you, okay. And uh, that's why the scripture tells us that Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah's womb had dried up. But God spoke to Abraham again at that time and he said to him, by this time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. And true to the word of God, Sarah conceived and a child, a son was born and they named him Isaac. Abraham was 100 years old when, when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90. How about that, ladies? That is a miracle, giving birth at 90. And I find it comical. When I, whenever I read that story, it makes me laugh. 90 and 100? Having a baby? Come on, man. We don't even have anybody 90 years old here this morning. And the child's name was Isaac because the name means laughter. Because that's what's supposed to happen. It should be comical to you that a 90-year-old would have a baby. It's a miracle. Whoever heard of a 90-year-old having a baby? That's why it was a source of great joy to anyone who heard about the birth of Isaac. Dad, 100, mom, 90. And as you can imagine, between Sarah and Hagar, there was a rivalry. And between their boys, there was a rivalry. Uh, for Ishmael, there was a rivalry because he had had his father to himself for 14 years by this time. 
Abraham, on his part, he loved both his boys, Ishmael and Isaac. When Isaac was three years old, he was weaned from his mother. And as was the custom, there was a big family celebration and food and all the celebratory stuff as happens in their culture. And Ishmael was 17 years old. And on that day, it was clear to him that he was the son of a slave woman and his brother, his half-brother, was the son of a, a free woman and his little brother would be the heir to Abraham. And so Ishmael mocked Isaac. And Sarah saw what it was going on and she told Abraham and she said to Abraham, get rid of that boy and get rid of that woman, Hagar. Abraham loved Ishmael. He asked the Lord, Lord what am I going to do? I've got two boys here by two different women and just, and the Lord told him, listen to your wife. I'll take Ishmael. I'll bless him. I'll make him a great nation, but he's going to be a man that has strife and contention in his life. And God said, Abraham, I want you to listen to your wife. Send Hagar and Ishmael away. And so Abraham did and Isaac became the heir of the promises. And as we know, Isaac became the father of the Jews. Ishmael became the father of the Arabs. And to this day, there's conflict and strife. I mean, that's a, that's a quick summary of the story. I mean, go and read Genesis yourself. And it seems like on the surface, it's like, wow, that is a story of dysfunction. That is a story of trouble. That is a story of family conflict and strife and problems. But Paul's about to tell us it's actually much more than that. There's one level where all sorts of spiritual lessons can be learned about the promises of God and obedience to God and lessons about uh, faith and striving to solve problems in your own strength and in the flesh rather than waiting on faith. But Paul says there's a whole nother level to this story, Galatian church, that I want you to think about because Abraham, these women and their sons, these things can also be interpreted, he says, allegorically. We're going to read this in a minute. An allegory is a, is a narrative that has a deeper meaning behind it. There's symbolism in the people, the actions. They have hidden meanings. I remember uh, years ago, I was at the beach with my boy Jonah. He was seven or eight years old, and he was swimming, and I was just kind of hanging out, supervising him, sitting on the log, and one of my neighbors was there, and we got chatting as I was watching Jonah play and swim on the edge of the water. And my, my neighbor started to comment on Jonah's name. Oh, Jonah in the Bible. And she said, that, that's a nice allegory. And she really put the emphasis on, that's an allegory. That's a nice allegory. And I said, I said, oh, no. Yeah, it is a nice allegory. But it's not just an allegory. It's historical narrative. It's true. It's a true story. It's history. And it has spiritual lessons that can be drawn from it. And it has allegorical lessons that can be drawn for it, from it. The Bible is full of allegory. But that does not make the accounts myths. Sometimes it's the, the allegorical interpretations that deserve the greatest caution. That's what I would actually say. Not everything is allegory. But Paul says the story of Abraham is. Look at verse 23. 
But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Hagar, you see, Hagar was not supposed to bear a child for Abraham. The marriage and the plan for her to bear a child on Sarah's behalf was not God's will. It was not God's plan. It was a fleshly act based on Abraham and Sarah's impatience and their lack of trust in the Lord. They tried to make it happen in their own strength. And so in this sense, you might say Hagar was trying to do what Sarah couldn't. And in a moment, we're going to read that this is a picture of the law. The law tries to do, listen, the law tries to do what only grace can do. Isaac was the son of the free woman, Sarah. He was born as a result of the promise. Verse 29, which we haven't read yet, actually calls, says that he was born according to the Spirit. When we come to Christ, we're born of the Spirit. It says Isaac was born according to the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. We're born again. And you know what that brings? It brings joy. It brings laughter. Isaac brings forth Isaac. That's his name. The law brings forth strife, which is what Ishmael did. Strife and contention. Both Ishmael and Isaac are from the father, Abraham. They're both from Abraham. The thing that makes them different is the status of the mother. One is a slave and one is free. Ishmael and Isaac illustrate our two births. Well, you know, you're born in the flesh once and then you're born of the spirit. These men illustrate this. These sons illustrate this. By physical birth, we are born under the law that lets us know we are born in sin. The spiritual birth is by the spirit. And in the grace of God, God makes us sons. We become, like Isaac, the heirs of promise. So in the lives of Ishmael and Isaac, we have a picture here of the flesh versus the spirit. The life of the flesh versus the spirit. And in the mothers, Hagar and Sarah, you have a picture of the law versus grace. Now look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are, two, are, the, are two covenants. One is from Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Hagar, he says, allegorically speaking, represents the law and Sarah is a picture of God's grace. I think who came first before Sarah and Hagar? Sarah did. Grace came first. The law, which is equal to Hagar, was added later. And Paul says these two women represent the two covenants. In Hagar, he says you have the correspondence with Mount Sinai, which is where Moses received the law. You know what's interesting about Hagar is the Bible doesn't actually tell us where she came from. How did she come into the possession of Abraham and Sarah to be a slave in Sarah's household? But when you think about it, she was probably born in the Sinai. When Abraham went to Egypt during the famine, remember he lied about Sarah 
And he said, she's my sister, and she was taken into the house of the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh took her until he discovered that she was actually Abraham's bride. She was his wife. And to atone for his actions, Pharaoh sent Abraham away, and he gave him riches and people, slaves. Hagar was probably a gift from Egypt, which makes sense because Egypt is always an illustration of slavery for the people of God. And Paul says this, that Hagar also corresponds to Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem on the earth. In a couple weeks, I'm going to be there. Looking forward to that with our church group. And Jerusalem is a place like no other. When, you've, when you visit, Jerusalem it just like blows your mind. There's no place like it on earth. Like honestly, the Jews consider it the center of their religion. For Christians, it's where the church began. For Muslims, I mean, it's second only to Mecca. And all three of the Abrahamic religions have their roots in Jerusalem. So it's just like the hotbed, the center of religion on the face of the earth. The Jews make their claim to Abraham through Isaac. The Muslims make their claim to Abraham through Ishmael. The Christians make their claim to Abraham by faith because he was the man of faith. And Jerusalem is a, an amazing place. And she, Jerusalem, Paul says, is a picture of Hagar, of spiritual slavery, of bondage, of law and works. When you visit Jerusalem, the level of spiritual bondage in the city of Jerusalem is palpable. Those of you that have been there, you, I see heads nodding. It's absolutely true. It is, it is palpable. There is this incredible contrast as you walk through. It's like religion, 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 religion. And you're like, man, Jesus is calling us to a relationship, not religion. The Jews are gathering at the wall and bringing their prayers. The Muslims on the Temple Mount. The Christians are trying to blend it all together doing strange things. It's very religious, you know. Makes you really uncomfortable if you're a Protestant. You're like, people are kissing stones and rubbing statues. What the heck is going on around here? If you see the symbolism in the allegory, you go, oh God, help me not to be a man of religion, not to live by works, not to live by law. I want to be like Abraham, Jesus, and live by faith. To live by the spirit rather than the flesh. Jerusalem is very focused on the law and the works of the flesh. And Paul is essentially saying this. Here's the point. It's not enough to claim that you came from Abraham. The question is, who is your mother? The question is, which city do you belong to? Paul says Sarah corresponds to this the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says this, she's our mother. In Christ, we are born in freedom. Sarah was a free woman and she is the mother of the free son, Isaac. And the Bible tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. All is of grace and we're to be men and women led of the spirit. You know, it's well said. The old nature knows no law, and the new nature needs no law. 
The old nature knows no law and the new nature needs no law. In other words, the old nature cannot be restrained by law. All law does is expose the sin and helps you know where the boundary is. And then it makes you fight against it. You have contention and strife with the law. The new nature, it needs no law because it's led of the spirit and it's motivated and it's constrained by love. Look at verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear and break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is a prophecy of Isaiah. And the prophecy was that the barren woman would actually bear more children. More, there would be more children of the promise than children of the flesh. Verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Because we've placed our trust in Christ, because of the finished work of Jesus who bore our sin on that cross, who died in our place and defeated death and sin and hell and the grave, who was raised to life. Paul says this, because of Christ, we are children of promise. We're born again, born of the spirit. And Paul says this, Ishmael has always mocked Isaac. The son of the slave woman will always mock the son of the free woman. I like this idea that Isaac was actually being weaned while Ishmael was mocking him. Fleshly, worldly people will always persecute and mock those who are born of the Spirit. They're under law. And we're being weaned and we're being brought into full sonship in Christ Jesus. We're not under law, but under grace, we're free. So Paul tells the church, just like Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, they were cast out according to the desire of Sarah and according to the command of God. Cast off the flesh. Cast off religious legalism. Seek to live by grace and be led by the Holy Spirit. You know, when we rely on law and rely on the flesh, the fruit will always be church legalism. And legalism is not about having spiritual standards and boundaries. Legalism is about worshiping those spiritual standards and thinking that we are spiritual because we practice these things and we judge others on the basis of these standards. And so as I read this, I, I, I just think this. Look, how do I bring this home? Look it. You're either an Ishmael or an Isaac. You either belong to the physical Jerusalem or you belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. You're a son of the flesh or you're a son of the spirit. And this morning I would say to you, ask yourself this. Am I an Ishmael or an Isaac? 
This is not about Jews and Arabs or Jews and Gentiles. God has sons and daughters amongst the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac. Sons and daughters amongst Jews and Gentiles. Galatians 3 tells us that when it comes to this matter of salvation by faith alone through grace alone, the Lord does not divide us on the basis of Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male nor female. We're divided on the basis of Christ. Where do we land in Christ? The real divide between people is like the divide between Ishmael and Isaac. The real divide between people is like the divide between Hagar and Sarah. Grace and law, flesh and spirit, children of God are children of disobedience. What does this have to do with you and I? Well, the question is this. Are you an Ishmael or an Isaac? Do you belong to the heavenly Jerusalem or the earthly one? And the Bible tells us this. If you're an Ishmael, you can become an Isaac. You can become an Isaac. Do you know how you become an Isaac? You find that joy and laughter. You just receive Jesus. You just welcome Jesus into your life. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead. You confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. You repent and you turn from your sin and you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll find joy and laughter in a life being led of the spirit that you'd never known. And then you learn this. You begin to just learn to live as a child of promise. Like I said, spiritual maturity is like being weaned. <laughs> like coming into sonship. You move from milk to maturity, right church? We know that around CTK. From needing guardianship into being mature sons and daughters of the living God. Are you an Ishmael or an Isaac? Let me remind you of just a couple things I said and we'll close. Those who look to him are radiant, church. And they will not be ashamed. Those who look to him have their sins forgiven. And, and the key to faith being integrated in our life is not to, not, it's not all heart and it's not all head. We don't want to get cold and intellectual and we don't want to get flaky and mushy. Grace and truth. Lord, help us be like Jesus who was full of both. So cast out the slave woman and her son. Church, live by the Spirit. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word tells us that we can shine like stars for you, Lord. You've made us the light of the world. Those who look unto you are radiant. Jesus, You've transformed our lives. We were Ishmael's. You've made us Isaac's. You bring us joy and hope and love and peace. And Lord, I just pray for anyone here who this morning, your, your word actually declares to us that the spirit testifies to our own spirit that we're sons of God. The spirit testifies to our own spirit that we're sons of God. 
And so the Spirit will confirm in our hearts if we're son of Isaac, a son of Isaac or a son of Ishmael. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that we're identified with Jesus. For those who have come to faith in you, Jesus, we just thank you for the testimony of the Spirit that's inside. And Lord, for those who don't have that, that leading of the Spirit this morning, it's unclear. God, I pray that you would make it clear to them. I pray, Jesus, that they would look to you with their faces, that they would cast off works and efforts and the striving of the flesh, and they would say, Father, just forgive me of my sin. I look to Jesus alone. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you're leading us from milk to meat, weaning us into sonship. God, we, we continue to grow and may Christ be formed in us. We preach Christ. Amen.